We live in some challenging times, to say the least. thought of several ways on how to introduce my lesson today. It's a lesson I've been thinking about for several weeks now. In fact, I'm going to try to turn it into a series of four or five lessons to deal with some things that you'll see unfold momentarily. I think every generation, because this is my third introduction, I think every generation thinks the generation coming on is probably worse than it's ever been. And sometimes they're right. I don't know, but it's far worse than I ever imagined that it could be when I was growing up. And the older I get, it is seemingly like, what's going to happen next? Our world is in turmoil. And I keep wondering about the morality of man and thinking, can it get any worse? And I turn to the Bible and I say, well, of course it can. I don't know how the people felt in the days of the patriarchs or the early patriarchs, starting with Adam and going down through Noah, about their world. But I know there came a time that it got bad, worse than it ever had been. And I don't know why God let it get that bad, but he did. And we read in Genesis chapter 5, or chapter 6 and verse 5, that the wickedness of of man was great. The Lord saw that wickedness was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'm thankful that there are some people alive in our world today that their hearts are not set on evil. But there is an awful large number that they are. In the days of Noah, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. He said, so the Lord said, I will blot man out whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Someday I'll do a series, but one. I think Noah is a but one. Now, he had a family. There were eight ultimately. He had three sons, they had their wives, he had Noah and Mrs. Noah, his wife. We may not know their names, but there were at least eight that were saved from the flood. And I bring that up just to say that there is hope in this world today. But sometimes it doesn't look like it. I think of Sodom and Gomorrah, how Abraham pleaded with God. He got all the way down to ten righteous souls. If there are ten in the city, will you still destroy it? And God said no. I don't know what the equivalent of ten is for our land or for our world. But I do know the truth that God is coming. Christ will return. And he'll right all wrongs. And we'll receive the faithful, will receive their reward. The early church was living in some tough times. 
persecution, we read about some persecution in the book of Acts. Stephen, the first martyr, and we'll talk about him just a little bit. James, or excuse me, James killed in Acts chapter 12. Peter thrown into prison. Paul and Barnabas thrown into prison. Paul persecuting the church. Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church early on, later becoming a defender of the faith. Persecution was something real that they faced. It would get far worse than it would be later than it would be in the first century. Because the church had a lot of supporters. It was seen just as another sect among the Israelites. Another sect of Judaism. Probably like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. You name the ones that were there. But later on it would get worse. Under Nero and Domitian it would probably reach the worst that it could ever get. It is in that context that Peter was writing to the church of the dispersion, as he says in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He reminds them of their inheritance that they're going to receive from Christ. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept by God's power, being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. But then he says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though tested by fire, by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is writing to Christians that have been displaced, living in all of these areas, facing persecution. And he tells them he wants them to continue on living the life that God had called them to. He said in chapter 2, in verse 11, after telling them that they're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into a marvelous light, saying you once were not God's people, but now you are. He's called you out of darkness to live in his light. But in verse 11, he would say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You're going to be facing persecution. But you live the life that God has called you to live. One, and maybe several, but at least one writer on Hebrews, on First Peter, has said an overall theme would be grace in the midst of suffering. We have to live, and sometimes we look at our world and we say, how much longer, Lord? Maybe we should revisit the idea of the Greek word maranatha and pray that prayer sincerely. 
Come, O Lord, or Lord, come. Come in judgment, come in redemption of your people and take us home. And one of these days, that's going to be the, the case. I don't know, it's several years ago now. I don't know how long I've had changed my lock screen. But somebody said at a Christian college, I think it was Ozark Bible College, that a professor there had a plaque on his door or his office wall, perhaps today. We don't know when today it will come, but we do know it will come. Maybe we need to pray, Lord, come today. Take us home. Take us out of this evil. But we have to watch ourselves as we live. And we know that there's going to be persecution and slander amongst us because people don't like us. For 50 years, Roe versus Wade was the law of the land. It was overturned last week, I think. Tuesday or Friday or sometime two weeks ago now. It's been over a week. And the riots, well, not unexpected, but they occurred. All because some people value taking the life of an unborn child more than they do protecting the life of an unborn child. When the fact of the matter is, from what I've heard of the Supreme Court decision, and while I've downloaded it and have not read it, which I intend to do, basically nothing changed. Abortion is still legal. Sad that it is, but in some states they're making it illegal. Or they're placing serious limitations on it. So that we are not like North Korea and allow babies to be aborted even up to the day of birth. We could say a lot, but that's the world in which we live in. And the evil of those who want to have that type of legislation and are sad and angry are rioting in the streets to show their disdain and distaste for the Supreme Court decision. They're attacking pro-life centers. They're attacking probably churches that they know that stand strongly against abortion. And in our woke culture today, if you hold any Christian values, you're probably an evil person. And they face persecution for it. Although not nearly as bad as what they would face in Peter's day. But Peter had something to say to the church. They're facing persecution. Say, you know, to be ready. And in verse 13, starting there in my text, will actually be in verse 15, and you'll see why in a moment. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as holy. Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better for you to suffer for doing good than it should be if God's, that if that should be God's will than doing evil. He's saying if you're going to suffer, make sure it's that you're doing good. You're living a life that is the life that would be honoring God. Suffering is going to be there. 
You may have no choice about that. But make sure that it is for righteousness sake. Have no fear for them, nor be troubled. Probably a quotation from, or take off on a quotation from what something that Isaiah would say in chapter 8. And if I marked it right, verse 13. The situation here with with Judah at the time, Ahaz is king. Ahaz is facing a crisis because of an impending invasion by the Assyrian army. Israel and Syria, Israel being the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, Israel and Syria wanted Ahaz to join them in an alliance to stop Assyria. But Ahaz refused. Israel and Syria threatened then to invade Judah. And Ahaz was going to align himself with the king of Assyria. But Isaiah warns him against ungodly alliances. And he says in chapter 8 and verse 13, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. I think that's a little bit of what Peter was saying in 1 Peter chapter 3. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I really prefer the New American Standard because I'm more familiar with it, but I like the way it says it. But sanctify Christ in your hearts as Lord. Set him apart. The Greek word hagios for holy. Set him apart. What do you do when you set something apart from common use? You revere it. You respect it. You do not defame it. It is first and foremost before God. Under the tabernacle and temple worship of ancient Israel, the priests would have to go through serious ritualistic cleansings before the sacrifices that they would offer so that they could approach God. Sacrifices would have to be made to approach God. The sin offering would have to be made so that you can come before God cleansed and pure. And we know what the Hebrew writer said, that the blood of bulls and goats will not take away sin. But that was what they had. They knew that God was holy. And they were to be holy like Him. Peter wants the Christians that he's writing to, to not have fear of man, even though they may persecute them. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, if God wills it, that's good. If you suffer for some evil, you deserve what you got. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that they may, in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, give God glory in the day of visitation upon His return. We sanctify Christ first as our hearts, as holy. We set Him apart from all else. That's the first thing we must do. And then he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. As many young boys in the 60s and before me, a popular organization called Boy Scouts. I went through all the levels as a Cub Scout. I went through the Boy Scouts, and when we moved 
it was just too far away to go from where we live to another little town where the tro- troop met. And so I think I got as high as a first class. But they move up to the highest in Boy Scouts as becoming an eagle. And the emblem for the Eagle Scout attainment, after you've accomplished a great deal, simply has the motto started by Baden, Sir Robert Baden-Powell, an English soldier, retiring as a major general. Well, his motto was, be prepared. It's an interesting life that Baden-Powell lived. He was number eight of ten children. His father was a priest in the Church of England. His father would die when Baden-Powell was three. He raised by a single mother who somehow made certain that her children were well-educated, and he was involved in a private, educa- a private school in England. But on his free time, he would sneak out into the woods and trap animals, rabbits, and cook them over a fire, which he somehow figured out how he could disguise the smoke so no one would notice where it was coming from. But he went on, and that got him served as a foundation for his military service. He was second in the testing for that they would determine where they would go. and So they sent him right into as an officer instead of taking him through officer training school because he was so effective. When he got out of the military, he came up with this idea of helping others. As He wrote some journals and some things that people would adopt, and children loved it. And they would work with it. And someone asked him about the motto for the Boy Scouts, what be prepared means. He says, you are always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. So Boy Scouts, typically when they're ready. I don't know when it was, earlier this year, late last year, there was an Amtrak train collided in Missouri, I think it was, with a truck on a, on a rail crossing. A train crashed into it. On that, trek, on that train were some Boy Scouts coming from Philmont Scout Camp Ranch in New Mexico. And they were the ones that were giving first aid assistance and acting as first responders because they were on the scene. And they'd been trained in first aid and life-saving and how to do certain things. I remember reading in the Boy Scout magazine, Boy's Life, when it, you know, it would be in a kind of a cartoon format. Somebody had fallen through the ice and there were two Boy Scouts running there. And these were true stories, and they knew not to go out on the ice. They'd go flat on their belly and extend maybe a branch, a long branch out to that person to help get them out of the water. Helping people who are lost. So they were always, as Baden Powell wanted them, to be prepared for an eventuality so that you could do your duty. Kind of reminds me of that parable of the Good Samaritan when the lawyer asked Jesus, well... You know, what's the greatest commandments? Love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told him that parable. The one who was in need. Beaten by robbers, left for dead. A priest and a Levite passed on the other side of the road, but it was a Samaritan who then went and took care of this man. He was prepared. He saw a need. He was doing 
in a readiness of state of mind and body to do his duty to his fellow man. Baden Powell was thinking more than just first aid and wartime emergencies. He wanted scouts to become productive citizens and strong leaders to bring joy to people. He wanted every scout to be ready in mind and body to meet with a strong heart whatever challenges that awaited him. Having a strong Christian influence, and that was strong in his life, he believed that spirituality and a belief in God were an intrinsic part of life, of the scouting movement, that religion was not just about studying scriptures, but a practical manifestation of loving one's neighbor and living an honest and compassionate life. Ugandas write, we aim for the practice of Christianity in their everyday life and dealings and not merely with the profession of theology on Sundays. Go figure. That's kind of important. That's real life. But the idea of being prepared for us as Christians is to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6. But here for Peter it means when people are persecuting you, when they're coming out against you, you're different than they are. So you be prepared to make a defense. Defense, the Greek word apologia, from which we get our study of apologetics. A reasoned defense, putting forth your arguments. But how do you do that? With study. With regular Bible reading and study. And regular Bible reading and study. At home, at church, when we're together, you take part in those things. You read books that deal with certain topics so that you can stay abreast of what's going on and hear other sides to other issues. But you make a defense, that reasoned argument. Why? Because you set yourself, you've set Christ apart as holy and you want to honor him. But people are going to ask you about your faith in Christ. Even in the midst of persecution, you're going to, how are you going to handle it? Well, you have to make a defense. If we read Acts chapter 7, and I'll just highlight a few things about it. This is Stephen's speech before the high priest, the Sanhedrin council. He started with Jewish history. And these Christians that, G, that Peter is writing to, that's all they had of the writings. Would have been the Jewish writings, the Hebrew scriptures. Oh, they would have teachings of the apostles and those who the apostles commissioned to tell them of their hope. But they would always start back with the Old Testament scriptures and show how from the very beginning this was God's plan. Now, Stephen got pretty strong at the end of it. After he went through all of their history with this, he would say, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, why do you, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did? So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed and announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels did not keep it. Now it cost Stephen his life. They took stones to kill him. And that started off the persecution ministry of Saul of Tarsus. But Stephen was ready. Paul would do something similarly in Acts chapter 17. Athens. 
the Areopagus, verse 22 of 17. Acts 17 and verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Well, that's pretty complimentary, Paul. He's being very kind, but he's also being very observant. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. You're a religious people. I see all of these objects of the how you worship things. And I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And Paul took advantage of that. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For if we, in him we live and we move and have our being. Even as some of your prophets, poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that a divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. These are times of ignorance and God is overlooking them in the past. But now he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The crux of the matter. God raised his son from the dead. You know, that was where their hope was. But they were prepared to make that defense when the time was necessary. Paul would do it when he was being persecuted himself. He would take advantage of Roman law as a Roman citizen. But he would make his defense. Why do we have to be able to make a defense in the face of an immoral and unkind or cruel world and persecution? Because we're different. Because we're different. We have a hope. Now, Christian hope is not to be thought of as some kind of a reward, perhaps. It deals with salvation. It deals with our inheritance, final vindication. The world uses hope as perhaps a desire for something good in the future. A thing in the future that we desire and the basis or reason for thinking that our desire may be indeed fulfilled. For example, a child may think, if they, because they want something, I hope mom or dad gets home early. We may say, I hope our friends, our children, our parents will arrive safely from their travels. A good tailwind, one might say, is our only hope of arriving on time if they're on a plane. But the, to the child, it doesn't mean that they have any certainty, but they just desire that their parents, their mother or dad, will get home soon. That they arrive safely, we don't know if they will or not, but it's our desire that they have. We don't know that we'll have that good tailwind to get us to our destination or that we'll have that smooth flight. We just want one. 
moral certainty is not is unlike mathematical or logical certainty because it's based on the character of one's will. The promises of God, whereas math and logic, their laws and syllogisms, and something could be mathematically or logically possible, but highly unlikely due to human will. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. Biblical hope is not a mere desire for something good to happen. It's a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Biblical hope has moral certainty to it. When the word says hope in God, it does not mean merely cross your fingers. It means to use, as William Carey, an evangelist said, expect great things from God. And because we have this hope, we stand out in the world as being different. And maybe even a bit of a peculiar people. But we have a hope. A hope that's founded on evidence. We could talk about the historical Christian evidences that tell us why the New Testament is reliable, why the Bible is reliable. We could look at science which tells us beyond probability that this world couldn't have come together by accident. And men like Del Tackett and Stephen Myers and others are far better at some of those things than what I am, but they are worthy topics to look at because they are the basis of believing that God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is just His revealed will. So we have a hope. And we need to be prepared on the occasion in which it comes up so that we can speak to it. It may not be in the face of persecution. It may be in the face of a political discussion on something like abortion, gay rights, hot-button issues. It's one of those things that said it's out there and we have to deal with it. And while I can't remember how the argumentation went, it just kind of a three-point argument says, I'm gay. Okay. Well, I want you to accept me. I accept you as a person. No, I want you to agree that my being gay is okay and practicing it is okay. I can't do that. I'm a Christian. You know, it is like, well, then, then, then you hate me. No, I don't necessarily hate you. I just don't agree with what you're saying. I accept you as a person. We take the practice out of the argument so they can't use that against us. And we treat them kindly. We give them our reasons for believing in God and in Christ and following Him. We do it with gentleness and respect. Kindly. Not being abrasive. Not shoving it in their face. Which unfortunately many Christians do on these issues. They shove it in their face and come off with a moral superiority. An air of moral superiority that I'm better than you. And we're all sinners. We have to be prepared. We have to be prepared for the hope that is in us. And that's one of the things that I want us to see today. Is that we're going to deal with issues every day and every year of our lives. And sometimes somebody's going to ask the question. Will you know what to say? Well... If you're reading and studying your Bible, you may very well know what to say. 
Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, sent out his 12 apostles. Go, now among, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Chapter 12, verse 5. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or tunics or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you greet, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return. And if anyone will not receive or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. Says truly, it will be more bearable for you than in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he tells them, after all of this, sending them out, rely on God. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Verse 16. Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That was for them. God may not miraculously inspire you or me on what to say. But if you are filling yourselves up with the Word of God in your heart and in your mind, prayer doesn't have to be long to be meaningful and impactful. It could be something as short and simple as saying, God, I have read and studied your word. Please give me the right answer. Remind me and help me to know what to say. We do believe in the prior of prayer, correct? Of course we do. God can honor that prayer. And he can guide your mind in ways that I may not be able to explain. But he's not going to give it to you if you don't study it. I had a college professor in American history at Washburn University. Every time before a final exam, before our midterms and our final, he'd say, if your practice has been in this class to keep up on a daily basis and review, you're not going to have to worry about this. But if your practice after class was to go to the local tavern, have a few beers and drink, and then cram for the test at the end, continue on because that's probably as good as you're going to do. What was he saying was that if you've prepared throughout the whole class, you're probably going to do well with a simple review. But if you didn't prepare, you're not going to cram for the final exam and do very well. It's just not going to happen. Peter tells us, be prepared so that you can give an answer for the hope that is within you. And we have a great hope. An earnest expectation that we will receive what God has promised. That Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. And that he paid the price for our sins. And that's the hope that we have. And while Brian wanted to lead the song, Victory in Jesus, I'm going to change that song to number 538. My hope is built on nothing less. Because I forgot to ask him to change to that. But I find it's a much better song because we have a hope. 
So let's be prepared at any time to make a defense for the hope that is in you. If you have a need, won't you please come to Jesus, who is your hope and mine, while we stand and sing. I will be filled on nothing less than Jesus' blood.